Uh, at first, I thought when I uh, well, we could talk about it about our Tubi experience, but it's great that it was free and it was that's what I'm going to use right here for our. I saw the Power Pictures, so that that is not the original logo. <laughs> oh, really? I don't think Power Pictures was around in '75. Oh, that's the first time I've seen it in front of this movie. Okay, so what screen do you guys see right now? I see the Power Pictures. And then I see the three of us above it. Perfect. Okay. So what streams is what my screen will see. And I just want to make sure you guys can hear this. We'll try that first. Tell me if you can hear. Yep. Okay, perfect. This will be interesting. I just want to set up over on the other side of me to see if it's going to stream. One sec. I missed you guys, by the way. Oh, I always miss you guys. Yeah. it's. it's but I even missed the ridiculous Facebook chats and stuff. <laughs> you know, we've kind of been radio silent for a little while, haven't we? I'm sure everyone will say the same. It's been busy for me. Mm -hmm. yeah, you're like out in the, the woods. And I'm going back out again Monday for the work week. Ugh. Wow. So how cold does it get? I, I know you do the Canadian temperature. Uh, it was minus 25 Celsius, which I think is... So what's your freezing? What's your zero? 32. Yeah. I think it was negative 14 Fahrenheit. Wow. Jesus Christ. Yeah. Oh my goodness. <laughs> Like when he gets down to like 17 in Jersey, I remember I, that used to be like, okay, give me a break. Yeah, no kidding, man. Yeah. Are we allowed to have that product placement behind Doug? Oh, yeah. Jack Daniels. Yeah. <laughs> and I want to start with the, uh, when I start streaming and talking, I want to, if it actually goes to YouTube, I've got to my right here. I want to start introducing what this channel is all about and talk about the people. <laughs> Because <laughs> it's kind of funny. I swear, it's probably people just, they type in right. Assassins or Tango and Cash, and they expect to get the full movie. All right. Even Not though it says 8 million things in the title. But Okay, you ready? I watch Tango and Cash. Okay, here we go. Start streaming. Well, I don't know if it's streaming or not, so we'll just, we're recording, we're going. Okay, welcome everyone to an episode of the Stallone Network podcast, and if you're watching this on YouTube or listening to this on YouTube, however you're listening or whatever on YouTube, let me give a little disclaimer here. I would say 90% of the complaints of our channel are people that don't speak English as a first language, which is fine. I don't know why that is. We get some good comments, by the way, but we get a lot of negative comments, a lot of thumbs down. Uh, we actually had one person ask, what is this channel, even though it clearly states what the channel is, and every video that we do clearly states what it is that we're doing. Like the title says, it's a movie breakdown and review. And the people complain that we're not showing the movie for free, okay? And I liken this to a robber or a thief going to your house with the intention to steal from you, but being mad at you that there's nothing worth stealing in your house. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I don't understand. How dare you? How dare you not have that which I want to illegally stream? It's not that hard to illegally stream. I've done it a couple times. I don't actually like doing it. I really don't. So I, I like to buy the product, rent it from YouTube, or go on Tubi like we use for uh, for this Death Race 2000. So whatever format that's legal, knock your socks off. And it's actually not that hard. There's a lot of free streaming legal services. It's weird that they're coming to our channel to find the movie for free. And yeah. then what I also find confusing is that when they find out it's a podcast that talks about movies, there's thousands of 
tens of thousands of podcasts that talks about movies. It, it blows people's minds. I don't understand. Three guys talking about a movie? Get out of here. That's insane. Well, anyway. maybe, maybe we're just particularly bad at it. <laughs> well, that's true. I didn't say we were good at this. That's always been my biggest thing I love about podcasts. When I first started listening to podcasts and I realized that anything that I had just read or watched or listened to or eaten, I could Google and find a podcast where other people were talking about it. And that was really my first main sort of draw to podcasting and be like, wow, I just watched a shitty movie. Now let me see what these other people think about it. Mm-hmm. And I also think one of the the values of our podcast is it brings exposure to some Stallone movies that people might not have watched or might not have thought to watch for whatever reason. And it brings attention to it. And it also sends a little bit of shekels to the creators of those movies. If the person rents it or buys it or, or does whatever, putting a spotlight on things is cool. And that's one of my favorite aspects of podcasting. Aside from the connections I make with people like you. Oh, thanks, man. Well, let's get into it. I, I just double-checked. We are actually streaming live. It worked. So we're streaming live, for better, for worse. Yeah, yeah. And I will say that what I'm going to do as well is I'm going to do the professional edit still for our iTunes yeah. and our po- our audio podcast listeners. <laughs> Did you tweet it out or anything? No. Uh, go ahead, guys. If you're able to, go ahead and tweet out the link. Let me find you, it. Yeah. I doubt want. anybody knows where live right now i will say that we have 431 what do you call it subscribers. Uh, subs yeah like that's legit like people have so there's enough subscribers on our channel that people have actually said you know what there is I'm, subscriptions yeah so there's people oh, that there have we are. we're live yeah so while, while craig's sharing his i'll talk so i'm ryan from going the distance the rocky series podcast today i'm joined of course with doug and get doug and craig to introduce themselves but we collaborate together I almost had that vanilla ice song in my head. <laughs> collaborate, collaborate. And listen. <laughs> All right, stop. Collaborate and listen. I sit back with my brand new invention. Something grabs a hold of me tightly. Flow like a harpoon daily and nightly. Will it ever stop? I'm really excited. Uh, anyways, I will say that this Death Race 2000 has been uh, Craig's Achilles heel for how long? I think since we started this. We put out the vote, and it won. Just so you know, it beat Fist, barely. But it did win fair and square. Uh, but legitimately. It did legitimately beat Fist. And I think the biggest complaint that people had about not wanting this one to win, and not in a bad way, is I think a lot of podcasts have covered this movie because of what it is, and not enough podcasts have done Fist. So for those people who voted for Fist, it's eventually we're going to cover every Sly film. We just like to have a little bit of, what do you call it? A little bit of fan interaction before the films are uh, reviewed, but eventually we're going to cover all the Sly films anyways. But I'm really happy, Craig, that this won for you. I am too, but I got to tell you, man, Liam, um, I believe it was Liam Dempsey, he made me legitimately feel bad that Death Race was winning because his argument was a, a good, valid argument. We've talked about both of these movies on Slycast. I do understand the frustration of there being a lack of talk out there about Fist, especially with The Irishman, which is up for an Oscar and stuff. And those are quasi-related in the sense that Fist is pretty much the Stallone version of the Jimmy Hoffa story. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it would have been timely in that sense. Why don't you introduce yourself, Craig, and then Doug, you go ahead and introduce yourself, and then we'll get into this film. Yeah, hi, I'm Craig Cohen, and I occasionally host the Slycast, which is Sylvester Stallone fan podcast, where we sequentially go through Sly's career from the beginning to the end. Hopefully we never finish. If you want to go to the Slycast archives, you will find 
our discussion of Death Race 2000 in episode one. The interesting thing about our early episodes, and Ryan and Doug, you probably remember this, is Slycast was supposed to be, I think, 13 episodes. And it probably would have been better off if we had made it 13 episodes. (laughs) We crammed a bunch of movies into each episode. So Slycast number one, I think, covers all of the pre-Rocky stuff that Sly did. So in addition to Death Race 2000, you get quite a bit of other discussions about Sly's movies from that time. On the episode of Fist, or Fist that we did, we did lump that in with another bunch of movies. So I am looking forward to when we discuss Fist on this show. Yeah, I'm Doug Greenberg, uh, one of the hosts of Rocky Minute, where we go through the Rocky movies uh, and cover one minute of movie footage at a time. We're currently recording episodes for Rocky 3. We have about 38 recorded. Just got to do some editing work. You know, I want to get a few more. Time, Doug. Yeah, I know. I know. I want to get a few more <laughs> in the can before we start releasing. But, you know, March, we're coming up on, on almost a year since our last episode of Rocky Minute released. That was the end of Rocky 2. So I know. What, what do you think you're a Slycast? Yeah. <laughs> I just picture Doug having this, the Rocky 3 scene on the beach where he yells he's afraid. <laughs> I'm afraid I'm going to run out of content. Well, that's the problem, isn't it? If we eat so much into our bank of episodes, like I'm a completist and my OCD won't let me skip a week or a couple of weeks, you know, to catch up. I have to really build up this bank because I, I will go nuts if we run out of banked episodes. Yeah, well, that minute schedule is very, very aggressive in terms of you're putting out four or five episodes a week. Yeah, we do one every weekday. So I know 38 episodes in the can sounds like nothing, but you chew that up in no time. Yeah, I miss your show. I do feel like I'm going to have Creed done by the time you're done Rocky Four. Yeah, you might. You probably will, actually. But then <laughs> we'll have Balboa now. But then we'll have your show. Our intention, though, is to go into the Ramble series after Rocky. So it's all good. There's going to be Stallone content for years to come. Years and years. Yeah. Well, let's get into this, Craig. What are well, you? Ryan, start- I don't think you oh. really, you know, plug your stuff. I did. I did when you were busy sharing our tweet. Oh. There. That's good. Multitask. Thank you. No, no, that's good. <laughs> No, that's why I can't either. Apparently, my wife can watch TV and her phone at the same time. I have, I don't believe it. But so, anyways, Craig, I want you to talk about the film first, what it means to you, and then I'll mention. We'll go in that order. Now, I'll go. Then Doug goes. Kind of like when you first saw the film and all that good stuff. All right, excellent. Yeah, Death Race two thousand, for better or for worse, is one of my all-time favorite films. I didn't even need to sit down and rewatch it for this episode. I've watched it so many times that I, I could probably recite the whole film. Um, wow. I'll tell you this. The short running time has allowed, uh, when I was in college, I lived pretty close to one of my cousins who I was really close with. And there would be days where we would just watch Death Race 2000 back to back to back just because it was so short and so easy to watch. The first time I saw this was probably the early 90s. A friend of mine was in film school and he made a short film about a hitchhiker that I starred in with him. In one scene, we run the hitchhiker over. You can imagine in the early 90s, with no money, you're trying to run somebody over in a film. How do you do that? So we basically made a scarecrow that we ran over. It looks (laughs) like junk, uh, but it was fun. And one of the guys on the crew um, said, hey, have you seen Death Race 2000? He goes, that scene where you, you ran the hitchhiker over really reminded me of Death Race 2000. We immediately went out and you know, got a copy of it. I fell in love with the movie. I know, Doug, you asked in our offline chat about this, whether or not it was comedy. Mm-hmm. And it's absolutely a comedy. 
but part better of the be. with the movie, part of the problem <laughs> we'll get into was there was a tug of war going on with the movie, and yeah. we'll, we'll get into that after we do our introductions. I, I don't see how anybody could flat out hate this movie. I could see people not understanding it. It's by far Stallone's funniest movie. <laughs> uh, funniest intentional movie. It's funnier than some of the quote-unquote comedies that he made. And uh, I, you know, I'm not looking to change anybody's mind here, but to me, it is a pitch-perfect film. I've never seen this film before, Craig. Uh, it came out in 1975, so of course when it was released, we were none of us were born yet. I was born in 75. I, I, I was. You were born in 75? Wow. I was 74, and I was a little baby toddler, and uh, <laughs> thankfully my dad didn't sit me down in front of the TV to watch this. I was watching this film, and I had no idea what it was going to be about. Then I saw it was a Roger Corman flick, and I'm like, okay, or production. So I'm like, okay, well, we're going to see violence and boobs, and uh, that happened. But that being said, I knew it would be a little bit campy and a little bit silly, so I totally was with that. I have problems with the film, but I also don't have problems with the film. But I did, I did review it in my brain for this show with – what it's supposed to be, if that makes sense. At the end of the day, not to spoil anything, but I had fun watching it. But there are some things that drove me at the wall that I would love to talk about. Uh, silliness. <laughs> How much of it's supposed to be a comedy, I think it should be talked about. But yeah, this is the first time I saw it was uh, this week. I've never seen it before. Being a huge Stallone fan, I know I should have by now. But again, this was out before he was Stallone. This was a David Carradine film, more than a Stallone film, of course. Mm -hmm. David Carradine already did the Kung Fu so series. So yeah. he was already kind of a known name. So I almost kind of find it weird that he did this film in his stage of his career. Yeah. The important question, Ryan, is are you likely to watch this film again in the next five years? No. Hmm. But if it was on, like let's say I was at a buddy's house. I don't have any friends. Uh, let's uh, – no. <laughs> Just joking. Let's say local friends. But let's say I was uh, – you know, it was on TV and somebody said, oh, what is this? And I'd be like, well, you should check this out. I would sit and watch it with somebody who's never seen it before more than, more than that. It would be fun to watch other people's reactions to this movie. That's fair. I think I'm leaning more towards Craig's appreciation of it than Ryan's problems with it. If you're going for production value, it's pretty low. The violent scenes, the blood splatters and stuff aren't what you would see in a film today. I watched this movie understanding that this, this is 1975, a low budget, for all intents and purposes, a B movie. I really enjoyed it. I mm -hmm. wish if I had a complaint, I wish that they would have really leaned more into the comedy because they really could have done a lot, a lot with it. There was a few times I really, literally was laughing out loud. One thing about Roger Corman, you know, everybody knows, his sole purpose was to make a profit on every movie that he made. And, and I believe Corman is one of the most profitable filmmakers in, in history. So that was his sole purpose, make movies cheap and make a profit. He's the cult classic B-movie king, isn't he? Yeah, yeah, totally. And the director on this film was a gentleman named Paul Bartell, who is actually in this film. He plays the doctor that brings Frankenstein out of that quote-unquote animated state mm -hmm. uh, to facilitate the limb transplants. Paul Bartell was a very, very sort of satirical filmmaker. He made a film called Eating Raoul. He made comedies. One of the things in this movie was Paul Bartell saw this script and knew that it was a satire. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it's kind of like Starship Troopers. It's so outrageous that you have to make it a comedy. But Corman wanted it to be uh, a gritty sort of violent exploration at Bloodsport. So you get this weird sort of, you know, all the second unit stuff, people getting impaled by Machine Gun Joe's car and stuff. That was done by second unit and it looks really, really violent. 
even though it looks like red paint on the people. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but then you had the scenes that Paul Bartel were directing where the acting is leans towards comedy. There's no part of this performance from Stallone that you can't say he's approaching this from a comedic standpoint. And I think, you Wait, know, we're I, not I supposed to believe he is. <laughs> I guess I, he, I laughed at him the most. <laughs> that was the, the main point of his character. And it's a oh, real okay. shame that he never did a true villain again after this because he excelled at it. It was it was great watching him chew the scenery. I love the setup of this. Okay. I love how it starts at the start of race day. We sort of get the religious leader makes his speech and then we cut to Mr. President. And it basically sets up where society is and how we got where we are. And you also get some awesome matte paintings with the monorail going by in the background. I noticed the monorail right away. I, I love that. I mean, I know it, it. I know it's cheap, but it creates a really cool vision of New York City in the year 2000. And I love the introduction of all the racers. They're all gimmicks. I'm sure you guys noticed Martin Cove, Sensei from The Karate Kid, as, oh, as yeah. uh, Nero the Hero. Oh, great American multitude and sports fans everywhere. Today, we inaugurate the 20th annual transcontinental road race. Today, the five bravest young men and women in this bravest of nations will risk their lives in the greatest sporting event since the days of Spartacus. Three days hence, a new American champion will be crowned for all the world to behold in awe in respect, in fear. So this is called again with the trans uh, was the transcontinental transcontinental road race, okay. or as Thomasina Payne will later say, the transcontinental road rape. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <Just> like that. <laughs> so uh, right off the bat, I had never seen this film before, so I was like, "Oh, there's only five racers." I was, "That's it? Five people competing?" Okay. The other thing was. This is the 20th annual. This movie was made in 75. Expected the country to go to shit. <laughs> in, in, five in, years? In, in four to five years. Well, yeah, but then now this is the year 2000, of course. So this race started annually in 1980. And apparently we're at war with the French. Yes, they destroyed <laughs> our telephone system. <laughs> How do they mess up our telephone system? I don't get it. That's the other thing about this movie that is frustrating, Ryan. There's points where Frankenstein talks about, of course, he's supposed to have a, both his eyes replaced, his jaw replaced, limbs replaced. And obviously, David Carradine is sort of just one of many Frankensteins. But there's even points in the movie where, like, Frankenstein references having a body part replaced, which didn't happen. So there are a lot of screwy things like that. The French are another part of it. Did the French really destroy the telephone system? Or did the government destroy it and blame the French. I think that's more likely. The yeah. French is such an easy mark. Yeah, exactly. And it, and that's what it seems like. But this movie sort of, it always plays both sides. Like it forgets what it had said two pages earlier. And by no means is that a critique of the film. It's, I think it's kind of what makes the film endearing. All right, let's uh, introduce this character that we'll hear throughout the film. He's the, the play-by-play guy. Okay, they're racing across the country in three days. Is that possible? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, when I drove here... When I moved to Las Vegas, me and my dad, I loaded up a 12-foot box truck, and my dad drove my car. We left on a Saturday morning, and we got here on Wednesday evening. By no means were we doing Frankenstein-type speeds. The box truck had a 
regularly around it, so I don't think I could get past 65. We took pretty good pit stops. Yeah, there's no reason that with a good navigator, you couldn't do this in three yeah, days. Yeah, the, the roads here are completely empty, too. They never drove at night. <laughs> no, they partied at night. Yeah. And I know it's just for filming's sake that they use the natural light because it costs money to have artificial light. So they use natural daylight to do all the filming. I also love the fact that as soon as they leave New York, they're in California. Everyone mm-hmm. who's messing up the race or falling the race, uh, what's her name? Something Payne? Thomasina Payne? Or Thomasina what? Payne, yeah. Yeah, Thomasina Payne. Like, she was always ahead of the racers. I, I don't know how they're getting around so fast. <laughs> Did you notice that? <laughs> that airplane from the last act. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Okay. <laughs> this is the introduction here. Uh, Junior Bruce is one of many people that would pop up in a lot of the Roger Corman films. Don Steele, radio DJ, um, mm-hmm. also known as the real Don Steele. He pops up in a lot of the Corman stuff. Paul Bartel, you'll see. Mary Warnoff, who plays Calamity Jane, would later turn up in Eating uh, Raul. But also another Roger Corman produced film that I love, Rock and Roll High School with the Ramones. Ah, wow. They really didn't think that fashion was going to be much different in 2000 than it was in 1975, huh? Well, certainly they uh, have a terrible dental plan. (laughs) They do. Bruce, your buddy, buddy, and mine. And I'll be giving you the blow-by-blow, play-by-play when the kings and queens of the open road roar onto the track. Do I hear the sound of engines? So what I love here is we're led to believe that somehow they have audio-visual access to the events throughout the film, that they're able Mm -hmm. then to give that play-by-play, but there's no indication how the technology is done. Did I miss that? Yeah, it's got to be drones. We we didn't know it. Even the first time I watched this film, I didn't know it. But now, in the year 2020, we know there's drone technology, and we can just assume that they're drones that we don't see, and you don't hear them. That's one thing that they nailed here. They predicted drone technology. Okay. But that was never mentioned in the film, correct? No. One of the greatest things you can do in science fiction is not try and explain the magic that you're... Right. It doesn't need to be mentioned. Yeah. I love how the uh, the turnout for the beginning of the race, which they get to see the drivers for like three minutes and then they're gone. <laughs> yeah. Are these people watching on a Jumbotron? Well, there's no indication how they're watching anything. <laughs> as far as the film events are concerned, they literally watch them leave and that's it. Mm-hmm. For those who are actually watching live, there will be a little bit of breaks here and there while we switch our free trial zoom over, but uh, it shouldn't stop too much. Okay, here we go. Let's keep playing. year's trials at Watkins Glen, placed second in 1998, and led in last year's second lap until she went out with gear trouble. Her fans and lovers everywhere wish Janie better luck this year. So her fans and lovers everywhere. (laughs) I I love that. There's just a strewn of lovers just smattered (laughs) up. And And they're all wishing her luck. So she has past lovers, but they still wish her luck. Including Matilda's navigator, Herman. Right. A couple of years ago, I got to meet Mary Warnoff, who plays uh, Calamity Jane. Lovely woman. Got my picture with her. And I also got a signed Calamity Jane picture that I'll try and dig up and uh, nice. send over to you guys. Wonderful woman. She was really, really pleasant, really generous with her time. 
Nice. I wonder if she gets a whole lot of Calamity Jane shout outs these days. She had, you know, Calamity Jane pictures for sale at her table. So, uh, okay. I think people um, do uh, ask for that. My fans can wish me all the luck they want. My luck with my lovers gets any better, I'll miss the race completely. Isn't that right, Pete? <laughs> at the start of the race, only a heartthrob away, this is Grace Pander on the spot, as usual, to welcome the greatest racer of all time and a very dear friend of mine. Yes, in just a moment, he will be coming through the doors. Great, great spot on phony BS character. Um, I loved it because people like this exist. They nailed it with this movie. Great character. Joyce Jameson, the actress, just really nailed it. She's just such a ridiculous character. <laughs> What's this guy wearing? Why does he have a jetpack TV camera? I don't know. <laughs> well, no, that's the transmitter. So he's transmitting from the backpack to the broadcast studio. Okay. It's wireless transmission, maybe a, a Bluetooth or Wi-Fi. Um, it's obviously again. what TV cameras look like in 2000. Yeah. Well, we're about to see Frankenstein come through the doors. Not really. Yeah. <laughs> we, see, we kind of see, we get his POV for a while before we actually see him. Was it supposed to be a S&M sex suit looking thing that he's wearing? Is that what we're supposed to think it is? Or a pseudo Darth Vader kind of helmet Well, this thing. is pre-Star Wars, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah, it was. Yeah. You're there right. you go. George Lucas got the idea of Darth Vader from this guy. <laughs> oh, yeah, he's not standing up here. That's right. Yeah. There is no cause for alarm. The patient has been flown in from abroad in a state of suspended animation <laughs> Why is in that? order to facilitate the healing of his recent limb transplants. He should be coming around any moment now. Oh, good timing. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> Well, it's all theatrics. Right. Frankenstein, can you give me an exclusive? How are things abroad? How is Mr. President? Is he still in Moscow? <laughs> this guy. <laughs> the Howard Cosell guy. <laughs> how is Mr. President? Is he still in Moscow? Boy, how, how little has changed. <laughs> Very on the nose, this movie. Mr. President is in his summer palace in Peking. He loves everybody. And everybody loves him. So not to get political, but it's interesting they're talking about the president and they go right to the uh, Nazis. Going for the shock and awe kind of character, but um, Nazis were, weren't really a thing in 1975. Isn't it weird that they were closer to World War II during the filming of this than we are to the yeah. than we yeah. are now to the film of this? Uh-huh. That's weird, eh? So now they're introducing the next contestant. Here we go. He is that adorable swastika sweetheart, Matilda the Hun from Milwaukee, and her lovable Nazi navigator, Herman the German. So it looks like we have some fighting in the crowd. Is that some uh, political hostilities going on there? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think you've got uh, the Nazis against Frankenstein people or just people that don't like Nazis. I'd really like to know, for the filming of those crowd scenes, what the people in the stands were told, because obviously none of the action we see with the cars was filmed when they filmed mm-hmm. these crowd scenes. 
I'd really like to know what was going on there and what those people in the stands were told. They're told it was a Trump rally. No. <laughs> <laughs> just joking. Just a little, little political humor. As a Canadian, I'm just joking. All good. Did they tell them like much or they just handed out Nazi flags to certain people? Or Yeah, it had to be interesting. Matilda, Herman, do you think this is your turn to be first and foremost in sunny California? Today, California. Tomorrow, the world. Hiya, Herman. I hope your buzz bomb has a little more juice in its warhead this year. They said tomorrow, California, and then after that, the world. Well, they have three days of California, so they're getting a little ahead of themselves. That was a Nazi. um... Today, Poland. Tomorrow, the world. Oh, Yeah, yeah. yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah, yeah. And if you notice, Herman the German is gopher from the love boat and also would later be a congressman uh, from, I believe, Iowa. Jesus. (laughs) And here he is playing a Nazi. Yeah. It's a good thing his name was Herman because if his name was like... It rhymes with German. It rhymes with German. It's very convenient. You can get to this movie where they're all characters. So maybe his name wasn't Herman. No. They just named him Herman the German. Less than a 20th of a second. Would you care to comment on that? No. How do you feel about going into the race with a navigator you've never met? You'll love Annie. She's a red-hot sex pot. She better be a red-hot navigator. <laughs> Where are they? No more. Qu- and why is there so much unused space? <laughs> Did you guys get any Clockwork Orange vibe totally. from this movie? Yeah. Well, this was kind of how people thought the future was going to be. There would be all these wide open spaces. They'd be white. Yeah. Like, yeah. Um, later on in the movie, when we're at their hotel room. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Oh like my god, yeah. Maverick. It's like <laughs> like a bed in the middle of this giant room. <laughs> All right, so we're going to get Machigan Joe's intro here. Hey, Nero the Hero Lodigan. Never has finished. Oh, no, not yet. Sorry. But three big wins in the provinces this season, plus a brand new beast means Nero's not fiddling around. I forgot about this guy. Go, Cleopatra, yes. stop blocking me. My fans want to see I wish he didn't die so soon. <laughs> Karate Kid, dude. Yeah, yeah. And the Rambo 2, dude. That's right. Rambo First Blood Part 2, dude. Yeah, it's interesting the uh, Stallone connections, right? Because, uh, of course, John G. Alvelson directed Karate Kid, which this guy was in. Then they were in together, of course, in Rambo Part 2. And here they are in uh, Death Race 2000. I wonder if they talked about Death Race 2000 when they're on the set of Rambo 2. <laughs> yeah. Well, you have to wonder if they even filmed together. Because by the time they get to their first pit stop, Nero's dead. So aside from, I think, when they're all in the starting line, I don't even think you see them together. They probably filmed together for half a day, maybe. Yeah, maybe. How could you not talk about this movie? Those look like good grapes he's eating there. Yeah. (laughs) Never seen a has-been before? All right, so here we got this the introduction of uh, Frank Stein meeting his navigator. Uh, He's never met her before, so this navigator, I guess, has been assigned to Frankenstein. We know navigators have survived. No, that's right. Just a a quick aside: I've actually seen this car here in person. For a time, there was a um, Corvette museum in Cooperstown, not far from the Baseball Hall of Fame. Um, I believe it, it is no longer there. Frankenstein's car was the frame of a Corvette that was modified. The owner of the Corvette Hall of Fame had Frankenstein's car on display and also a screen and projector set up in a screening room. So you could sit there and watch Death Race 2000 on a loop. Oh, yeah? Uh, Yeah, yeah. That's great. So me and my cousin took the drive to Cooperstown. We watched a a shitty 35 millimeter print of 
uh, or 16 millimeter print of Death Race 2000, and then took pictures with the car. Um, unfortunately, it was the pre-digital camera days, so I, I have no idea where those <laughs> pictures are. And my cousin actually jumped in the car, which you weren't supposed to do, and sat in Frankenstein's seat. Nice. That's awesome. Good story. Check out uh, Frankenstein's face here. What I love is, of course, this is the first time viewer we thought, you know, we were led to believe that this is his face, that he's all mm-hmm. messed up. And I love how he's going for the full act here where he's doing the mouth breathing. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> My jaw's been dislocated or sewn back on. We know that he isn't like this later in the film, but he's doing it right here with his navigator. He's really pulling out all the stops here for being disfigured. But what I also love is when they pull off the mask, like we know that that's a makeup job under the mask, but when he pulls off the mask, that makeup part comes with the mask type. Right. <laughs> it's yeah, like part of the, the mask. The detail around the eyes, they line right up perfectly when yeah. you put the mask back Ex- on. Exactly. Like, <laughs> it's like when Batman wears his cowl, you know, he's got the black paint yeah, yeah. that somehow gets removed, you know, every time he takes off his cowl. Annie Smith. Mr. Frankenstein. She's pretty, by the way. Yeah, very. I checked out the car and everything seems perfect. I have the route maps right here. I will check them in a minute. We will roll when everything seems perfect to me. I've uh, packed some high-protein capsules and as many adrenaline tablets as I could find. And I've also assembled a medical kit, just in case. I'm trained as a nurse. I don't need a nurse. I need a navigator. Mr. Frankenstein, you're very good at what you do. And I'm very good at what I do. We'll see. <laughs> like his broody, you know, this attitude he's putting on. Yeah, yeah. We're supposed to believe that he means business. Yeah, we'll see. And so David Carradine, uh, right away he recognized his voice. In fact, I didn't know anything about this film, so I knew he was in it. So I didn't know he was playing Frankenstein. So when I heard the voice, like, oh, that's him under the mask? He's going to be under this thing the whole movie? That's weird because he's a big-time movie star, or, you know, at least TV star at the time. A lot of cool little reveals that I was surprised about throughout this film. And this is a complaint that I did have, and we kind of touched on it, was I was confused if I should find this a gritty film or a comedy. And it was hard for me to, quote-unquote, navigate my viewing experience. Do I invest into the comedy silliness I don't mind the jokes and stuff. I, I was wishing for more brutality because I got a kick out of the brutal deaths. It's one of the frustrating things about the Jason Statham death race that we yeah. got. Yeah, I mean, they really could have leaned into doing a gritty remake of this film. And instead, they did that whole prison thing, the, all kinds of nonsense surrounding that. And they've made like four other ones. Right. Of note, they did make a true sort of, I want to say, a remake of Death Race 2000, Roger Corman. It's on Netflix here in the U.S., Death Race 2020, which is kind of Death Race 2000, but made in 2015 or whatever. And it's nowhere near as good as this movie, but it has a lot more in common with Death Race 2000 than it does the Death Race, the Paul W.S. Anderson, Jason Statham movie that we got. Yeah, I was wondering about what that connection was. And you know, there's only one person who guns an engine like that. It's gotta be the roughest, tough guy of them all, Machine Gun Joe Viterbo! Oh, I just got the Viterbo now. Comes Machine Gun Joe, loved by Turbo? thousands, yeah. hated by millions. Only living previous winner except for Frankenstein. Highest lifetime score after Frankenstein. And he's certainly getting the welcome he deserves. 
Joe doesn't look too happy, but you just can't keep those Frankenstein fans down. Lousy sons of bitches. <laughs> Frankenstein? That's Frankenstein. So this, of course, is the big introduction for Machine Gun Joe, which is Sylvester Stallone's character in this film. I thought this movie was going to be more brutal and dark, and I was kind of hoping that we would see him <laughs> laying out the crowd with his machine gun. Like a really, <laughs> yeah. and I know that sounds terrible, but it's still kind of in a 1975 maybe way, but just to show how brutal Machine Gun Joe is. So I don't know who he's shooting at. Is he shooting at? Are there blanks in his weapon? Are, there, are we led to believe there is casualties? So would he have gotten points for them? I guess the race didn't start, so the answer is no. No points um, yet. But again, no. this is that disconnection between the shots of the racers and the shots of the crowd. I don't think whoever did the crowd shots knew they were supposed to get coverage mm-hmm. of civilian spectators being slaughtered. As soon as a Machine Gun Joe roars onto the scene here, you see what a star Stallone is. And this is pre-Rocky Stallone. Mm-hmm. It's post-Lords of Flatbush, which I think a lot of people give credit for him being where he is today. But Don't ever say those words again. <laughs> I think this movie um, showcases what a star Stallone was prior to Rocky in terms of his potential because as good as everybody else is in this movie, Stallone far and away steals it. Oh, um, totally. Pitch perfect writing and pitch perfect delivery from Stallone. And I said earlier, it's a real shame that he never played a, another true villain before. He excels in it in this movie. He plays the role perfectly. Spy Kids 3. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I was upset that the guns on his car didn't fire. Probably too much money to make that prop. Yeah. Yeah, these are pretty much paper mache props <laughs> thrown on the front of the cars. So, Craig, then, uh, your thoughts. Did he kill people in the crowd or did he scare them? Absolutely, he did. I think the budget and lack of communication between the second <clears throat> unit and the main unit. They just didn't get the coverage they needed, and they couldn't go back and get it. But only the lousy sons of bitches. Yeah, and there we see a little bit of a Rambo when yeah, he's the, flying their gun, and you see him do that. The scowl. It's a Rambo scream, basically. Yeah, he does that a lot in this movie, the Rambo face. Yeah. <laughs> Sole survivor of the Titanic pile of 95, only two-time winner of the transcontinental road race, Frankenstein ripped up, wiped out, battered, shattered, creamed and reamed. A dancer on the brink of death. Frankenstein, who lost a leg in 98, an arm in 99, with half a face and half a chest and all the guts in the world, he's back. God only knows what he looks like under that mask, but he is back. In the name of Mr. President, America loves you, Frankenstein! Arguably the least impressive car out of the the five. But the best outfit. (laughs) (laughs) Is his name serendipitous? Did he always have the name Frankenstein, or was it when they started to rebuild him? That's the question I had. What came first, his uh, supposed reanimation of parts? Because he's been racing for how many years? At least the whole um, time. what they say was the first. Well, he was part of the pileup, the great Titanic pileup in 1995. Yeah, yeah. So maybe at least five races, and he's won it twice. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So here's that scene. There here. We go. There's yeah. that beautiful. Uh, <laughs> That's hilarious. <laughs> Cartoon animation back there. So we see that this event is streaming to people's TVs who are watching on TV. Mm-hmm. Now, where's this location? 
for our listeners, we've got a shot here of this uh, almost like a hellish-looking staircase that leads up to... That's Peking, right? His Peking. summer palace in Peking. Okay, so they got a camera crew in China to talk to the president, <laughs> but he makes his way... Is that, am I right by saying China? I should check myself. Yeah. Okay. Peking is China? Yeah. I believe so. So I, I love how we have... Uh, <laughs> We still have issues with the U.S. mingling with China and Russia still to this day. The president is in China for whatever reason. The land summer palace. Come on, man. Is that what the? I don't know. When Frankenstein came out of the suspended animation, they asked him if he was in Moscow. Frankenstein said, "No, he's in his summer palace in Peking." Okay, I thought it was an actual place, summer palace, China. (laughs) Sorry, (laughs) Jesus Christ. I was that like, sounds like a Chinese restaurant. That's what I mean. <laughs> Let's go get the Peking Duck at the Summer Palace. Actually, I heard that's where the coronavirus started, was the Summer Palace. Oh, man. That's so he's, topical. So he's, yeah, very, thank you. So he's about to give a speech to his children from China, from the Summer Palace. Here we go. Whom I love so dearly, it has been my duty in the long and difficult years since the world crash of 79 to serve you as best I could. Never before in history have the masses forgone all comfort so that the spirit of genius might thrive and seek the golden key to a new time of plenty in the fertile field of minority privilege. And now, my children, the drivers are ready, the world is waiting. Once more, I give you what you want. All right, so off they go. I like the off-key Star Spangled Banner in his speech. Yeah. It's like there's something a little crooked. It's been, it's been perverted. Here's a little bit of a conspiracy theory. He's not actually in China because he ends up in California at the end of the race. So, Well, they travel across the country three days. I guess he can fly there in one. He could. But I think, again, this is part of the smoke and mirrors that is this government. He could be in a studio down the street from where the race starts. Here we are. Uh, they come out of the Lincoln Tunnel, and they're seemingly in California already. Because, mm-hmm. Doug, you can attest to the fact that there's no mountains like that anywhere near when you get outside of no. New York City. <clears throat> no, the other side of the Lincoln Tunnel is is very, very urban. The greatest thing they pulled in this film, I will say, is... Empty roads? Yeah. <laughs> Never another car on, uh, on these roads. So they use some pretty ex- expansive highways. And I give them credit for having just their five cars and less on the road at any given time. I read something about the stunt drivers not driving. They had to speed it up. Yeah. Be, yeah. Well, especially, like, um, I think the director was driving through some scenes. I, I lost Doug. I'm not sure if it's me or... Doug, I think we lost you. Uh, wiggle your mic or something. We lost your audio completely. It crackled out. Yeah? Might Doug? be his headphones. No, nothing heard, Doug. Yep. He's going to switch mics. We'll just keep going there, Craig, until he comes back on. I don't know what Doug was alluding to, but yeah, I, I do know that they shot a lot of this. Stunt drivers were uncomfortable driving at high speeds. Well, yeah, um, you can totally tell it's that almost a 1960s Batman television speed up yeah, the camera they it up. <laughs> to make them look like they're driving fast. Totally uh, works with this movie, though. Right. One thing I'm confused about is how did they decide what is a faster route? That's the navigator's job. The navigator had two jobs. They had to find the best route to California, but also the route that would give them the most scoring opportunities. Right. Can you guys hear me? Yeah. Yeah, there you are, Doug. All right. What I read was that the director was driving in some of these scenes because they didn't get the proper permits to use the roads. So legally, the stunt drivers couldn't. Uh, that's awesome. 
yeah, again, kind of the guerrilla filmmaking type of stuff that we got in Rocky. <laughs> yeah. No permits. You kind of just jump out, film a scene, and jump back in the van and take off. Yeah. So now we've got the inside of the Rebels. Is that what they're called? The Rebels? Uh, the Resistance? Resistance. And Thomas we... Cena Payne and Sergeant Fury. <laughs> Thomas Cena Payne. It's like her parents wanted a son. <laughs> Isn't she supposed to be a descendant of Thomas Payne, like Patriot? I think that was what they were going for, whether or not she's actually related. But there's no real deep stuff going on here. It's all pretty much out in the open. It's really on the nose. You can't expect Ryan to know too much about American history. I know more about your U.S. history than you do about Canadian history. I'll tell you that much. That's goddamn right. That's absolutely fair. I just want to say a couple of our listeners have come and say hi to the channel. That's Bill V. You know Bill V there, Craig? Because he, he said here, he goes, it's about time, Craig. So maybe he oh. just he might just be a listener of our show in general, so he knows uh, how Death Race 2000 has eluded us for so long. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you, Bill. And then uh, Robert Medina just said, hola, fellas. So one of our... Uh, oh, he's a returning fan. Yeah, for sure. So welcome, guys. Yeah, so here we got the Rebel Alliance, the Star Wars Rebel Alliance, <laughs> fighting Darth Vader Frankenstein. I, maybe George Lucas really did rip off this show. Who knows, right? <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> the president talks about how he's made the U.S. the greatest power in the known universe. Do they have any other connections with outside planets? <laughs> it's nonsense propaganda from a dictator, basically. <laughs> he called it United Provinces of America, too, right? Yeah, yeah. States. I wonder if you guys had the metric system by now in 2000. <laughs> well, well, no. Actually, to get serious for a minute, which we don't do here that often, I do remember when I was in, in middle school, they made us learn the metric system because I think there was a point where there was talk that the U.S. was going to join the rest of the world and go metric. I guess the lobby feet and inches was just too powerful. I think you guys still have to kick that racism issue, and then we'll get you. We'll let you in on the metric issue. <laughs> One step at a time. <laughs> baby baby steps. steps. Yeah. <laughs> well, your president has baby hands, so maybe baby steps would be nice. <laughs> I'm just joking. We love Trump. <laughs> I don't know. I just got to play both sides of the fence here. I'm bipartisan, right? Is that what they call? I got to. I got to. I got to play both sides of the coin here. I don't want to offend any of our listeners. I love the re sort of the reconstituted flag as well. They've changed the American flag. Yeah, it looks like almost like a Chinese influence Russian mix American mix flag. Yeah, no blue. They got rid of the blue. Yeah. Also given you the most popular sporting event in the history of mankind. The transcontinental road race, which upholds the American tradition of no holds barred. No holds barred. So no holds barred, guys. You guys are both U.S. citizens. Is that an American tradition right now that you guys are no living? Holds barred. No holds barred. <laughs> like in what concept? It's a Hulk Hogan movie. It was. It was in the uh, giant black guy with, with the weird eye. Zeus. Yeah, yeah. Tiny Lester. Yeah, that guy. Tiny Lester. You want to get the background on the rebels and what their mission is there, Craig, for our listeners? Well, they're not down with the with the current government and their resistors, and they're looking to basically take Frankenstein, who is seemingly the most important commodity that the government has, kidnap him, which would force the race to be canceled, which I guess would put people's faith in the government would take people's faith in the government away because obviously people want the race. I'm not really sure what their end game was. 
Um, well, it's kind of confusing. So for those who don't know the movie at all, maybe Annie Smith is the granddaughter of the leader of the resistance, Thomasina Payne. And she is, of course, a navigator for Frankenstein. And we're now we just find out that she's there to mess things up on her end as a kind of a spy or infiltrator to mess up Frankenstein's chances of winning or maybe even killing him. I don't understand why they just try killing the president. Well, you'd have to get on a plane to China. Well, they know that he's going to be at the race. He said he's going to be he's going to be at the finish line. That's a known fact that the president is there all the time to greet the winner. Yeah, I, I think disrupting the race, though, there's a symbolic gesture there because mm. the race sort of it seems to represent the new America, and I think stopping the race after 20 years is really, like I said, there's some symbolism there. Okay. And uh, Annie Smith's in the car now because they just mentioned that you know it all hinges oh. on our grand on the granddaughter. Oh, what's that sound? Did you hear that? Can you hear? Can you hear me? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. All right. I think my mic crapped out again. You sound okay there too, Doug. It would, however you did it there. So she just asks uh, Frankenstein, "Do you ever take off the mask?" So again, another influence to the Mandalorian, Star Wars world. Never taken off the I, mask. I do like how Frankenstein tests her here, where he has her make an adjustment to the car while they're driving, uh, and he calls her an amateur. It's, <laughs> it illustrates the fact that I don't know if Frankenstein is somehow aware that she's not who she's supposed to be, but I think it's kind of cool how he tests her here, and she seemingly passes. It does seem odd that they would accept a navigator that they didn't choose themselves they can just assign a random navigator to them and they'd be okay with that there's so much prequel potential in this movie mm. um we could have gotten a solo a, a annie a death race story where we see how she infiltrated the race and you know maybe it took years to work her way up to be frankenstein's navigator sadly we never saw that I'm kidding, of course. Um, but oh, are you? <laughs> I, I, I also got the takeaway that the navigators are pretty expendable, for lack of a better word. It seems like navigators aren't expected to survive races, and they're not treated with very much regard. Well, we're about to get the big reveal here. I'm surprised he got the mask off right away with her. So I guess he, in some way he's testing her and, and trusting her at the same time to expose that he is not the mangled human that the public is led to believe that he is that he's actually not those things yeah well he also he's aware that his goal is to finish the race shake hands with the president and basically kill himself and the president so i think he needs to get annie on board with what he's planning to do because as far as he knows annie is as straight as they come and isn't aware that she's part of the resistance so he's kind of got to make sure that he gets her in line with what he's going to do not going to lie, he doesn't look much better without the mask on. No. <laughs> We're kind of left in the dark, really, as to why he wears that prosthetic burnt face. Well, he's, he's not the first or the last Frankenstein. Yeah, we get that later, though. Right now, aren't we still a little confused as to why he puts on this, this charade? As far as we know, he's he has a fake leg, a fake arm, half his face missing, his cranium, his nose. I want that water bottle, too. With, with a big, giant long, straw, steel <laughs> straw. He did mention just before she demasked him, like uh, you're doing this at your own risk. Uh, you, it's your responsibility to see me for who I am. So take it or leave it. So we find out that he's just a guy. He's he's not all mangled up. He hasn't had any replacement surgery. He's he himself is a charade to the public. Not just another pretty face. Yeah, that's for sure. <laughs> 
All right, so let's hear the uh, conversation that Stallone has with his navigator. listeners know what's going on so they're driving down the road and they're on a race and we have people who are uh, even though it's the uh, annual transcontinental road rape <laughs> their people are still working you know these poor souls you got a job to do they're doing road repairs or mm-hmm. whatever and of course the construction crew sees machine gun joe coming down the road but nobody says the poor jackhammer dude <laughs> there's no loyalty i will say this i will say this ryan that i think these workers took a calculated risk because it's clear that the transcontinental road race is a national holiday right so these guys are probably working on double time Mm, it's worth the risk yeah well what i love is the moment this guy is killed we cut right away to uh what's his name again the announcer bruce junior bruce and he's got so they've got this live action gory killings right away and there you go folks who will listen to this so the guy gets killed he gets basically skewered down the groin it's a great kill all right all right and yes sir a clean hit a perfect hit and no pain for the target uh, i think i heard him say <laughs> just two years older he'd have been worth three times the point okay here's but the point system for here the we go second year in a row machine gun joe has splattered the scoreboard first how'd you like that huh get off of that one myra baby okay not yet they'll talk about the scoring thing later we'll talk about that breakdown i love myra by the way um Really, really fun actress, and she's great as Myra. Uh, Louisa Moritz, who actually, she died last year, if I remember correctly. I remember reading it uh, at the time, and uh, I believe it was breast cancer. I do like how Annie Smith is fixing this. Her position on top of the car is... <laughs> Maybe Frankenstein had an ulterior motive there. <laughs> I think so. See the, uh... Yeah, he's looking in the rear view mirror right now. <laughs> 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 Keep your eyes on the road, bud. Look, see? He's looking. He knows what he's looking oh, yeah. at. He's smiling. I'm a little bit upset with our 2B. Oh, uh, man. I was pick, very upset. We'll get to that. So there's a yeah, there's a part that comes up where the pit stop, and they are getting massages. And, of course, you know, for a typical massage, they're not wearing anything. And it was pixelated. And at first, I thought it was pixelated because it was on national television for the show. Mm-hmm. Even though they're showing violence on the TVs, I thought well, maybe they're pixelating the pit stop for the viewers. But I was like, no, they're not. <laughs> I'm being pixelated. <laughs> you know, Roger Corbin wouldn't have any of that. That's true. <laughs> We'll uh, have the uh, point system play out for the audience and for our listeners and watchers because it explains it pretty straightforward. I love how casual this guy is. To Pennsylvania, the cradle of liberty, it seems apparent that our citizens are staying off the streets, which may make scarring particularly difficult even with this year's rule changes. To recap those revisions, women are still worth 10 points more than men in all age brackets. But teenagers now rack up 40 points and toddlers under 12 
now rate a big 70 points. The big score, anyone, any sex, over 75 years old, has been upped to 100 points. As always, how fast you move determines how long you live. Now, now these rule changes are key because look at what they're doing. They're highlighting the children under 12 and people over 75. Toddlers under 12. Toddlers. Yeah, toddlers. The reason to get rid of the toddlers under 12 would be to thin potential resistance in the future. Mm. Um, The less young people, uh, the less potential for people that are going to resist. And then the older people over 75, you're looking to get people that are a burden. It's actually pretty calculated that they went with those rule changes. Um, You're getting rid of two key demographics. I, I was wondering about that. I mean, that kind of makes sense now. There you go. A little bit of thought into the point system. Just saw the kill. Calamity Jane killed... Tommy Chong. <laughs> yeah, who did he kill? Well, it looked like Tommy oh. Chong. Yeah, he's got a kick out of it. So this um, guy, was he a Calamity Jane fan? So he dressed up as a Toro dude and... I think he was just showed up to bullfight whoever... He was a cocky guy who thought he could mess with the driver. Well, he was clearly targeting Calamity Jane because her car is called the Bulls. This gets to a point that Ryan made earlier. How do these people get in ahead of these? How did the Matador know what route Jane was going to take? We just heard the point system, and now we've got the scene here of Frankenstein. These, I guess, macabre fans of the show, are (laughs) they put out on the street where they know the racers are going to go through a whole bunch of uh, old people. So we now we know the point system is we've got about what five, six, seven, ten, ten old people in the middle of the road that the nursing staff have put on <laughs> like just it's to get rid. Of- <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah, it's, it's uh, we we are sick of giving you the pills, Mister Johnson. You're going out well, in the street. Well, again, these are people that are a drain on society. It seems like an easy way. Is real life that much different though? <laughs> well, that's the political commentary, I guess. Yeah, are the old people? Not a burden to us. I'm just kidding. It's so uh, pathetic. I love the. I love these old people. <laughs> just, oh, they're ready. They're, they're accepting it. Though, look at this guy smiling away. Again, I'm sure these people had no idea what they were filming. <laughs> <laughs> this is when I really started laughing the first time. Frankenstein, though, what he does is he shows kind of like a weird act of. And that's a mercy or for the viewing audience. He, he, what he's done is he actually has detoured around the old people and ends up running over the staff that put the old people on the road, thus giving him less points, a fun little view when the people are flying around. So yeah. it shows you a bit of a commentary that, or, or not commentary, but it shows us his character that, okay, he's not that ruthless. He, there's something going on with this guy that he'd rather kill the people that put the people out there mm-hmm. than the people that are out there. Mm-hmm. And I love the fake little laugh the one broadcaster gives about Frankenstein's sense of humor, and then he does like the ha-ha. Huh, huh. coming up here? <laughs> yeah. Nine scores at last! But what kind of a score, boys and girls? Just 110 points out of a possible big 700. What do you think about that, Gracie? Well, those doctors, dear friends of mine, have been pretty smug all these years, setting up the old folks. Frankenstein must have decided it was their turn. Which only goes to show that even the fearsome Frankenstein has a 100% red-blooded American sense of humor. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't catch that. Yes. 
So even the commentators were like, they. Uh, I like how they, even they uh, worked with it. It wasn't what they expected, but they still gave it a commentary on that weird, well, why did Frankenstein not get the points instead of the 700 points, but he only knocked up 120. So it should be noted, it didn't. they didn't reveal this till near the end of the film, that you can get first place, but if somebody gets second with more points, so the points do matter? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. A weighted system, right? So what I'm getting at is, could you just like go around the country for two years <laughs> killing people? Well, when the race ends, right? But when does the race end? I think when the first person crosses the finish, all, all scoring opportunities are done, right? No. Although, doesn't Frankenstein get points for killing the president? Did he at the end? I don't think he got points for that, did he? Hold on, oh. I'm enjoying the view right now. Oh, sorry, yeah. <laughs> no, please carry on. <laughs> So, of course, we're led to believe here that Neo and uh, his... Uh, Nero? Nero. Nero, sorry. Neo. They're going to run over this family of kids and I stuff. Do, I do like when he tells her she'll be out on her asp. Asp? Yeah. Is that a snake joke? <laughs> yes. But what, I, what I love here is this is the resistance setting up a, setting up a trap for Nero and, and his navigator. Pretty stupid. But what I love is that he's dressed up as a mother or a female taking care of children on a picnic. And... There's no reason that he has to wear makeup. Because <laughs> <laughs> he's got the mustache. <laughs> Is that necessary? Is that part of the disguise? Hey, that's just a really unattractive woman with a mustache because she's wearing makeup. <laughs> I think maybe Sergeant Fury's got a little bit of a kink going on. <laughs> yeah, maybe. That was just for him. When it came to dressing him for this mission, they're like, okay, we'll put you in this dressing hat. He's like, put, give me some lipstick and eyeshadow. They're like, well, that's not necessary. No, no, no. Just- I think he's got a little bit of blush there too, Ryan. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, Who so- leave a baby behind when it's a- you're scattering? Well, it's a doll. I no, but I mean, that, but- I think it's a doll within the movie too. No, Nero yeah. obviously thinks he's going to score it. That's right. No, no, he's going to run over. He goes, bye-bye, baby. Hello, 70 points. Why would you think that somebody would leave the baby? And then also, wouldn't you go for the three people that are kind of clustered together? Well, they're behind the tree. Yeah, I know what you're saying. Uh, we're trying to make too much sense of this. So that's a pretty good kill. So now the command and control people of the race here are panicking that Nero got killed, which is weird because don't they get killed in these races? Is it because he was sabotage killed? Yes. Okay. It wasn't a, a crash with another racer or anything like that. We're led to believe that the viewers are seeing this race in real time because the commentator is anyways. They're not seeing the setup that's done? Well, they didn't see the what we saw with the resistance. So all they saw was Nero with a target, and then Nero blew up. Yeah, these drones got to be following the cars themselves, right? Enough with these yeah. drones. <laughs> <laughs> I love how the network, though, has... Grace ready to go live with the first victim's wife. <laughs> I, I think that's great. This is the first time that I really started to make a connection with The Running Man, which was another sort of you know untraditional blood sport that is also propaganda-based. I think The Running Man takes that idea and went a lot further with it. But here with the interview and the fact that this woman won a quote-unquote high-rise vacation home, obviously she didn't. I think it's kind of cool. I think there's a lot of really cool concepts here that they explore if you take the time to think about it after you watch the absurdity that is this movie. The uh, scene that we have here is now uh, Thomasina Payne has uh, intercepted the airways with her uh, plea to rid themselves of the president of his ways. So the racers have a broadcast feed? Yeah, Yeah, that's what it seems like. 
Yeah, because now we see Frankenstein listening to this speech. I guess it's playing on the radio. Yeah. They're listening to their own race. It's weird. It'd be like a hockey player listening to the play-by-play while he's playing a hockey game. (laughs) You don't hear it during their conversations. When Frankenstein was having that conversation with Fanny, we didn't hear the race in the background. No. It's a plot device. They get to hear what we're hearing so they understand what's going on in 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 the storyline. Yeah, don't be so nitpicky, Ryan. Yeah. It's not me. Craig brought that, that up. <laughs> <laughs> I know. And I love the fact that Frankenstein really no-sells it. And, you know, Annie's trying to say, hey, aren't you afraid? And Frankenstein pretty much brushes it off. And all the other racers seem concerned. So we have an, another setup trap here by the uh, Rebel Alliance. They're bumbling fools. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they completely miscalculated which direction they were going. <laughs> <No. from. laughs> and they don't hear the car approaching from the back. <laughs> So here we go. This shows the map here of them navigating throughout the country. Some of them go right, some go left, some go straight through, but they always end up at the same spot anyways. Is there any indication that whatever route they seem to take, they always seem to end up at the same spot? You know, you have to find the best way to get to St. Louis, which is your first pit stop, but also the route that's going to have the most scoring opportunities. This is more Machine Gun Joe, right? This is brilliant, brilliant scene. Let's play this one. So the setup here is you got a guy uh, putting up a sign, and one guy's on the ladder. A big Frankenstein banner, even though Frankenstein is not there first. How disrespectful. That's true. And Machine Gun Joe just hates the celebrity that Frankenstein has. This Echo Where's the one that says, Welcome Joe Paterbo? Score the center of a big show. You need every point you can get. That's a pretty good stunt, the guy on the ladder hitting the pavement there. Put him out of his misery, Joe! Hey, is that fair? Yeah! Hey, should I let him go? (laughs) Fair's always right. Fair's always right. (laughs) That's a good good kill. He runs over his head. (laughs) It's gratuitous. Yeah, it is. It's it's silliness, but it's fun. So this yeah, is their like first pit one. stop here, I guess. They got their uh, navigators cleaning the cars. Or who's cleaning the cars? I guess it's just some pit crew people. Pit, pit, pit crews. And I love how they flew in Nero the Hero's wreckage. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody's shining it. And the floor mats there, right? <laughs> so here we have their first pit stop. They're all being massaged by somebody of the opposite sex is massaging them while they're uh, nude on the table. And the camera crew comes in. I love how the camera crew comes in and interviews them one by one here. Here's another character we really don't get a lot of um, yeah, who's backstory this, on. Who's this guy? I think he could have gotten a prequel, too. He's <laughs> <Look at the laughs> dying for his prequel. Like, is that you, Big Gun Doug? Is that you as an extra? <laughs> I got to tell you, I wonder if Stallone saw this guy on set and was, like, you know, inspired to pump up a little bit in later years. Like, that guy was his inspiration. He's got the tats on him, too, which is wasn't that common back then, or...? Wow. Must have been a military guy. Oh, probably. Freaking military guys. I love uh, Matilda's line about a, a win from a member of the master race, a woman. Mm-hmm. Um, and I love how Caddy, Jane, and, and Matilda are with each other. And this is where we're robbed of some uh, some TNA. Yeah. Not cool, Tubi TV. Yeah, so those, well, it works for our YouTube channel, I guess. <laughs> no, that's true. They even blurred that navigator's butt i love how they bl- they blurred the guy's butt what? yeah exactly i mean what not that i'm complaining i mean i am complaining i mean i'm not complaining 
Yeah, that guy's got some uh, strategically placed tattoos. So Frankenstein's coming down, but he doesn't get a massage because he doesn't want to disrobe and show that he's just a normal guy. Well, does he need one? With the amount of artificial limbs he has, is there any benefit? Well, speaking of the limbs, I mean, do we want to talk about the reveal of his hand now? or He actually does have a fake hand, right? He's got a hand grenade in his glove. Just when she pulls it off later, he's got no hand there. <laughs> he has been maybe reassembled to some degree, but maybe not to the degree that people think. Mm-hmm. Which is so weird that he has a grenade hand. <laughs> <laughs> it's a true hand grenade. Oh, no. Oh, boy. I didn't even think of that. It's a hand grenade. Yeah, and this is where uh, Frankenstein whispers sweet nothing into Myra's ear. Great shot of Myra there. So here's Sly here. Doesn't quite have the build that we'll know later, but he's working on a little bit. This is where he becomes a true villain. Okay. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he smacks Mira. That's irredeemable. I don't think he smacks. He he, he punch like oh, yeah. He, he closed fist punches her, doesn't he? This is a weird meeting here. So we got a girl president of the Frankenstein fan club, and she happened to know that Frankenstein was down here. She's the head of Chapter 7. Yeah, and she's going to sacrifice herself for him. Which I think, oh, if man. I'm not mistaken, I think she is the director's daughter. Body. Oh, really? Oh, really? Okay. Fandom is kind of like that. She's willing to sacrifice her life to Frankenstein. Well, I think it also illustrates how important this race is to the citizens. She says it took years to earn the privilege being able to sacrifice herself for Frankenstein. Her name's Lori? Yeah, that's Wendy Bartell. Okay, yeah. Look at this room. It is an interesting room. <laughs> you could have fit like 12 rooms in there. <laughs> I know. But you can see that it was made for this movie, that this is some sort of gymnasium here. And she yeah, like there's the an exit. <laughs> Not much privacy for them when they get down. Oh, man. There's an exit door. Why is he wearing the outfit right now in this room with her? I mean, he does take off the mask, but it's kind of an interesting... I guess he just walked in here, maybe, from outside, sure. He does, like, a whole slow undressing thing here, which is unsettling. Well, he's trying to be, like, seductive, I think, but it's... Right down to his black Speedo. The boots. I think he was wearing a similar outfit when he was found dead in that closet. (laughs) I think you're right. Why did he put the mask back on here? Uh, Who knows? Because he took it off, right? He took it off. And then he hangs up his uniform, and then he he's wearing the Frankie undies. And I never caught that he was wearing the glove there. But as of right now, we're led to believe he's holding a grenade in his hand right now. That's a grenade hand right now. Yeah. It's dangerous. There's something kinky about the mask. Let's be honest. Yeah, totally. I, I don't understand the dancing thing. This is not fun to watch. It's going to be over soon. Thank God. Look at the back hair here. Look at that. <laughs> oh man so they make love oh this is another great Frankenstein scene so they're about to start leg two the, yeah the drivers are going to take off and Frankenstein drops his glove and the spiritual leader goes to pick it up let's watch this road race. Frankenstein is making a left turn splitting early from the pack look out all you folks just south of here gee Jill has nobody even close behind us <laughs> Where's he going? What's he doing? Hey, what are you doing? Where are we going? I dropped my glove. Let not the ruin of thy robes respect the tires of thy... Chrysler! (laughs) Ladies and gentlemen, by a bizarre accident, Frankenstein has killed our cherished colleague, the deacon of the bipartisan party. I think you did that on purpose. 
So he killed the deacon of the bipartisan party. And I love how they didn't have a point for him. They didn't know what he's worth at the time. Yeah. And they considered it an accident. Do you score accidents? That's a good point, Doug. Is this also part of Frankenstein's grand plan to wipe out the administration? Yeah. yeah. But why I mean, did he know that it was going to be because the guy was mumbling, you know, let not thy ruin, desecrate the road. I guess he knew, I, I guess Frankenstein has run this race a few times, so he knew the religion of the race in the sense that if there's litter on the road, the, the deacon of the bipartisan party picks up the garbage. Yeah, or he took a, he, took, he gambled and he said, hey, if the right person picks this up. But imagine if nobody did. <laughs> it's just a glove on he the road. Got, he would have went back and gotten his glove. <laughs> I guess. He got the kill. I think we find out later it was only worth 40 points after all or something like that. Machine Gun Joe have a reaction to that? Was it a lousy sons of bitches uh, comment? Because <laughs> I know he, he hears it on the radio when they bring out the ruling. I don't know if he reacts to it or not. <laughs> so we hear we had the fan club girl. She is here to be sacrificed. And what I found interesting is Frankenstein's like, you want to die? All right. He does run over, if I remember correctly. He does. Like, he spared the lives of the elders... Yeah, this is where you get the inconsistency with what the story is, because you'd think that Frankenstein would be opposed to killing this girl, yet he does it because he knows that she's proving her love for him. Sometimes it seems like Frankenstein, oh my goodness, this is a great kill coming up. Um, it almost seems like Frankenstein believes his own hype. And then we get another Roger Corman mainstay, Dick Miller. Dick Miller of Gremlins fame. Yep, uh-huh. So now we've got what we call chicken in the basket. These guys are literally playing chicken. They're just having chicken fun having fun with the race. They're saying, let's just see how close we can get to getting killed, but we won't get killed. And they leave their buddy. They set uh, this guy up. It's beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> I love his kill there. He gets hit and he gets flung over. Yeah, he and, just he tumbles through the air. And then they turn around to laugh at their buddy who got killed, and Machine Gun Joe runs over them from behind. <laughs> it, <laughs> That's a, that's a fun kill. That's a fun. It kill. is a good one. <laughs> oh, this is. There's a lot yeah. of good stuff coming up. Don't we get play, play the audio for this scene? Oh. Okay, let me go back. Oh, this recalls her a, a baked potato. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. I, I didn't mean to cut you off. Sorry, Craig. No, hey, hey, who got the last laugh there? I don't understand that. I, I, I did it. I'm no schmuck. <laughs> and he gave him, he gave him a shortcut. That's right. Okay. Oh, I thought that was a big potato. No, it's later. I, I'm confused. She said, "Take the shortcut. I don't care if you take the shortcut." Then he says, "I'm not going to take the shortcut. I'm going to." Yeah. And then I took the shortcut. <laughs> yeah, Myra's probably the best navigator in this whole race. Hmm. Um, and she told Joe not to take it. Joe had taken Annie's advice for whatever reason, and he turns out to be a schmuck. <laughs> not according to him. He ain't no schmuck. And then this is where Annie makes a, a terrible mistake. Well, she is giving a Frankenstein a scoring app opportunity. What, the Penison's compound? Ooh. Huge scoring opportunity that Frankenstein knows does not exist. So I think this is the exact moment where 
Frankenstein realizes that. But at the same time, he goes along with it. So you have to wonder why. And there's the Frankenstein double. I think he's too tall to be a true Frankenstein double. The plan here is what exactly? They're going to kidnap gonna Frankenstein? They're going to switch out Frankensteins. But what's that going to do for the movement? No. <laughs> so let's well let's assume this plan works that they stop Frankenstein, they take him prisoner, put in a fake Frankenstein with Annie Smith as a navigator. Then what? Maybe they are going to kill the president, or maybe Frankenstein is just a distraction to confuse Frankenstein. I didn't think they wanted to kill Frankenstein or or the president or anybody. They just wanted to trade Frankenstein's life for the president's promise to discontinue the race. How the fake Frankenstein is in the car? I think they. They think that the president values Frankenstein more than he he actually does. But what will happen? They'll say, we'll release Frankenstein if you never hold this race again. Mm. I also like the fact that this guy, um, the fake Frankenstein, looks more like the Gimp from Pulp Fiction. That's what I had written down when I had Gimp. He had gone to Party City and they were out of the Frankenstein outfit, (laughs) so he got Gimp from Pulp Fiction. I ever get my hands on him, I'll rip his heart out! Sounds like every road trip with your spouse. <laughs> <laughs> so angry throughout this whole movie. I love yeah. it. Yeah, yeah, he's angry. Well, he's Machine Gun Joe. You can't be, you can't be calm when you're Machine Gun Joe. They killed the fake Frankenstein. They were going on with the trip. He knows now that she's an yeah. insider, essentially. Yeah. This is where the story gets a little messy, and you need to just dumb down yourself a little bit and just sit back and enjoy the climax of this film. Not really showing his hand, though. His grenade hand? or <laughs> I think this is a pretty telling scene here, too, because he has the opportunity to, to score his own navigator. Right. And he doesn't. Well, it's a nice little scene when he says, you know, go around the car, and he, she steps in front of it. He does a little bit of a, a engine rev just a bit, just to kind of show her, like, I could kill you if I want to, but I'm not going to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Counting on you to make a nice big score. Oh, not this part, but when she goes back in, I guess, at that part. But he does, like, a little engine rev to show that he could kill her. Frankenstein realizes at this point that she is part of the resistance. Why not let her in on your plan? Now, you guys, if you know that you kind of got the same end game in mind, you can work together. I mean, that's the thing they do at the end, but they don't do it here yet. Here's probably the best Joe uh, scene in the whole movie. Uh, let's set it up for the listening audience. There's a guy fishing. <laughs> He's just fishing. It's a national holiday. He doesn't want any part of this. You know, he doesn't care about the race one way or the other. Machine Gun Joe parks the car next to a fisherman. The fisherman is on the edge of a cliff. He unwittingly trolls Machine Gun Joe. Jesus H. Christ! I'll kill that bride! Check your face! Hey, Cornball, what's the fastest way through here? Well, um... Actually, the way the only way we do it is we get a bulldozer and we trim this edge down here and we drive through. But no, no, what's the best way between here and Albuquerque? You got to go back to the main highway, really. But I lose 45 minutes. I've seen you before. I'm one of your greatest fans. You know that? I follow all of the races. I got pictures of you all over the outhouse. I named my favorite dog after you, Mr. Frankenstein. I did. Lousy, stinking dirt bar. You got two seconds to live. And I thought for sure it said just jump off the cliff and you'll be fine, which he does. But then he should have stayed there. Right there, yeah. 
but he goes where the car can drive now. That's his, that's what kills him. <laughs> there should be Benny Hill music playing over this. Here, let's turn the volume. What's that? So there should be Benny Hill music playing over this. Yeah. I love how he's carrying his fish still. Like, he caught those fish. I am not letting go of these fish. I love the POV of he, Joe's car there. There you go. And then he peels out on the guy's groin. Yeah. Oh. It's a good kill. And another good kill coming up here. Two in like a minute each. This is the signed photo I have of uh, Mary Warnoff, by the way. I was going to say, that's a great shot, actually. That's yeah. actually a good shot. We're putting the camera there with her leaning out. So, yeah, now her navigator's dead. Killed by who? The Nazi? The Nazi. He takes him out. Yeah, Matilda the Hun. All right. Hope everyone's enjoying our Death Race 2000. Thank you to everyone who's watching and joining us for the ride. Literally, literally the ride. We're really going to pick up here because we get the doubles. Matilda shows her what has to be inexperienced as a driver when she gets duped into driving off a cliff like Roadrunner style. Oh, yes. yes. It was totally a Looney Tunes. I actually rewound it three times when I watched it. I was laughing so hard. It's like, I can't believe yeah. It's like that Wiley e. Coyote painting tunnel on a on a brick wall, and then the Roadrunner smashes into it. That's exactly the note that I had too. We're all on the same page there. Wiley e. Coyote yeah. painting the fake tunnel, or uh, yeah, the fake tunnel. It really shows what a terrible driver she is. And then Jane is so shook by it, we, we lose her shortly after when she backs up onto the landmine in a very very tense scene. She's chasing a, a guy on a on a dirt bike. Who yeah. what, does he roll over a mine of his own? Because yeah. Uh huh. He blows up too. Yeah, here we go. They set it up just like the Looney Tunes. That, it, that is <laughs> remarkable. The detour and everything, man. They did everything except paint the white line off the road. And then they lift this up here. <laughs> oh, <laughs> where's that brick wall attached to? <laughs> it doesn't matter. Here we go. Here we go. It's perfect. Oh, dang, Navid, it's a detour. <laughs> There's no road uh, or anything. Yes. Uh, <laughs> the speed they're going to to whoa <laughs> the whole time she's riding on that road there's a cliff to her right yeah she doesn't realize this look at that spinning all. what's this fuel line or something spinning around there it's pretty good yeah. mm-hmm. she's a terrible driver and Herman is a terrible navigator they, they both deserve this yeah and they're and they're Nazis well yes now we got Junior saying there's been an accident explosion they're updating the audience on that but this comes in from the government that it's not an actual uh they want to keep the actions of the rebels quiet from the public that there's people fighting this race so that happened again here that they just made it sound like an accident so why did frankenstein let her drive again you just wanted rest sure <laughs> so we got a boy playing with a tire in the street of course like nobody can just play in their yard and this is such an old school thing a kid rolling a wheel down the street isn't it not 1975. I mean, that's from like the 20s or something. Well, it's just, it's the old trope that they do sometimes in films when we hit that apocalyptic nature of our life, we go back to simpler. This is supposed to be the year 2000, right? Yeah. And the world is, you know, living off whatever it is. The kid probably doesn't have toys. That's what they're showing you that America is now kind of a, a destitute, poverty stricken, no fun. So that's, yeah, that's the kid's fun playing with a rubber tire. <laughs> So now Frankenstein sees that she 
wouldn't kill the boy for points. Mm-hmm. And that she is truly an insider and not a part of the race. And then they switch seats again. And Frankenstein does that uh, engine rev here, where she walks in front of the car to show that I know who you are. I could kill you, but I don't. It's a cool psychological scene because Frankenstein's saying I could have killed you here. But at the same time, Annie willingly steps in front of it. And she knows that he's not going to score his own navigator there. They're both playing chess there, if you will. But she's still not onto him yet either, is she? I think she knows that he knows that she knows. I think they both just know now without saying it. Okay. And she has no choice but to go along for whatever ride that she'll be allowed to go on with him because she's at his mercy now, both in a physical sense. He can kill her at any time. And he hasn't yet. So she's like, well, I'll just keep doing what I'm doing and he's going to keep doing what he's doing. I'm going to live as long as I can with Frankenstein, which it turns out they both have the same goal in mind anyways. They just haven't said it to each other yet. So we get the next stop. It's It's a nice dress. (laughs) This is great. like... Eating like what, like clam chowder or something with his fingers. I have no idea. What is that? It is clam chowder. It's clam. It clam ch- yeah, it's clam chowder. Oh. But he's so gross with it. He's eating with his fingers and no. smearing it on his face. Then he Got dumps it on that guy. What is that guy's role in this? He's like the race president. administrator or something. I thought he was the president's second hand man or something, the right hand man. So now the racers are wondering what's going on. They're a little bit more wise to the situation that rebels are causing issues with the race, even though the public's not. You got to respect Annie's ring, the big mood ring. Mm. <laughs> it's huge and purple. I think we're coming up on the big fight between Joe and oh, Frankenstein. Oh, yeah, as let's, well. go, let's go to that. Let's go to that. All right, let's play this out here. Yeah, so. I threw you Joe's off course, pretty, okay? Yeah. All's fair in love and war. I'm glad to hear you say that, Annie, because what we've got going here definitely ain't love. Well, then why don't we just forget about it? You know, Annie, it's too bad things ain't like they were in the old days, and we just take somebody in an alley and blow the brains out. You know? Joe, please. Go ahead and scream, Annie. You're hurting me, Joe. There's nobody to hear you. How does it feel to know you're going to spend the rest of your life in pain? The rest of your life. It's about a minute and a half. That's a very bad guy moment. I caught the navigator trying to screw around with the car, so I thought I'd come out and have a look at what was going on. You know what I mean? Hey, come on. He completely chucks himself out here. This fight here is... When, he, when, when uh, I'll just mute it here because people can't see what they're listening. But that first punch that Joe throws, I thought it was going to be like a love tap, but it was legitimately supposed to be a punch. It was just so horribly choreographed. And there's a scene here where it is a stunt double that we see another yeah. Stallone stunt double. Yeah. This is where some of the Rocky, if this was made post-Rocky, we probably would have gotten a better fight scene. Probably. <laughs> yes. Yeah, also incredibly impressed that this ladder doesn't fall over. It kind of just hops. It's amazing. <laughs> oh, yeah. oh, it did fall over there at that part well, there. But it, it hops. It should have just fallen right over. He really gets chumped out here. <clears throat> the blood on Joe's face at the end of this, there's, like, there's a lot of it. Yeah, yeah. You know, more, not even movie blood. It's <laughs> 1975 movie blood. There was a point where you couldn't do realistic looking blood. I like how Joe seems to think it wasn't a fair fight. 
nobody sucker punched the other guy. Like they, mm-hmm. they both knew they were about to fight. So it's kind yeah. of weird that like in Joe's twisted mind, he thinks it was, you know, a fair fight somehow. <laughs> right. Like he was ambushed or something. Yeah. I like him as a bad guy, man. That moment when he was choking Andy was like a great bad guy moment. No, I mean, I don't know how anybody couldn't see this movie in 1975 and not want to cast Stallone. Um, yeah. He outacts everybody in this movie. He does, he, actually. It's definitely the side characters, he's the highlight. He overshadows Carradine, too. Yeah. Well, Carradine's character is, is a lot less showy. I believe this is where um, Pit Crew gets scored, right? Yeah. Yeah, because <laughs> Joe hears him talking. About his black eye. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's right. So for our audience, the pit crews are talking bad about his eye and wondering who beat them up. So at the start of the race, Mishiga Joe goes backwards to kill those two guys that were working for him. I guess he figures he doesn't need him anymore in this race because this is the last lap of the race. It, it kind of ties into like the disrespect Rocky gets from Gazzo's driver. Mm-hmm. People like going out of their way to disrespect Stallone. Like. <laughs> He's got a very disrespectable face. All right, so this is the last lap, final round. Joe goes backwards, kills the two pit guys. <laughs> you lousy sons of bitches. <laughs> we really should get a sons of bitches count from Stallone in this movie. <laughs> so you got 40 points for that. So they're only 20 points each, I guess, those guys? Mm-hmm. Because oh, okay. they're young, male. The last part of this race is pretty much... Calamity Jane's death. Yeah, you have yeah. Calamity Jane's death. But that's the one with where she's on the landmine. Baked potato. Screw you, Java Turbo, and your mother! Wait till you get to New L.A. first with the highest score, too. It's coming up on the left. Forget it. I'm keeping Frankie in my sights. He's got five minutes on us, and he's stretching it. So what? If there's trouble up ahead, he'll find it first. Find it first. You know, Myra, some people might think you're cute. But me, I think you're one very large baked potato. That's great. <laughs> a very large baked potato. Yeah. And Joe's got a great strategy there, if you think about it. He's clearly ahead on points at this point, And he's just going to ride behind Frankenstein and let Frankenstein draw any kind of potential danger. I think it's, it's a great strategy. See if it pays off for him. <laughs> I can't remember who wins. <laughs> so we have a scene here where they're setting up a mine. I love how they're giving the little touch there of how they're gently putting the dirt around the mine, which I can still see it quite clearly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, oh, yeah, they lure her in somehow, Clammy Jane, near the mine. I, I can't remember how they do it. Oh, they they first tried to knock her off the road just with their motorcycle fight here. This was not too bad. I guess kind of very Mad Max, which came out, I think, after this or before. Yeah. Yeah, uh, Mad Max came out in, I want to say, like, 79, 79 I, think, 80. I think the first one, yeah. It's a good little sequence here. Climate Jane shows her uh, fighting prowess, the, her ability to take on two guys. While a tow truck is pulling her car. <laughs> How dare you? <laughs> so they had a plan B. If they're not able to take her out on the road, they'll lure her to this, you know, landmine. Uh, right, they take her right to the landmine. Why does the motorcycle explode? <laughs> <laughs> the script says so. He bailed on his motorcycle, but it just exploded. Yeah, it shows him only planting one mine. 
And then she looks around and sees that she's in a, like, you know, like a car graveyard. This has been used for other racers. They've successfully have led other racers to this pit area of death. Pickup truck wasn't in a race. And, and it looks like it was riddled with bullets, too. But isn't that what I'm seeing, though, Craig? Is that the idea is, is that this has successfully lured other racers here? I don't know, because... Because she panics when she sees all the other destroyed cars. But isn't this like the first time the resistance has interfered in the race? I'm led to believe maybe they've done things in the past. Because the traps and they're and they're are pretty sophisticated. <laughs> so you got, baby bomb. The, yeah, they got the baby bomb, the Acme fake tunnel. You got you so you got to hand it to them. It's taken years of. Uh, it really is all Looney Tunes inspired. Well, right now he's doing the uh, Bill Cosby drink right here. <laughs> the Cosby you know, cocktail. That's probably timely because I think in '75 that was the height of. Bill Cosby was drugging women in the 70s for sure. So maybe he saw this and thought, hey, it's a great drink. So it's a 30-minute drink or pill that he slips into her drink, knocks her out for 30 minutes. I love how it's a 30-minute sleep pill. Exactly. <laughs> Just enough time for Bill Cosby to do what he's got to get done and for them to wake up. Yeah. But clearly he doesn't trust Annie enough to let her be awake for this portion of the race. She falls asleep through the action sequence of the plane, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. What was his motive here? Like, what part of the race is this for him? I think he knew they were getting down to the end, and he didn't think he could completely trust Annie, so he had to disable her. The last 10 minutes here is just really it's the action, big action sequence. They were able to amp the budget up a little bit to have a plane come in for yeah, some filming Sergeant for a day. Yeah, flies the plane into the side of a, a mountain. So it's not a bad little fun little action sequence, but I love how much arsenal this plane is carrying because if you count how many bombs it drops, it's a very small little plane, but according to the arsenal that it drops, it's about, you know, two tons of <laughs> <laughs> munitions. Yeah. How they spin it to be the French. It is the French yeah. that uh, attack them. So how does Joe die again? I can't remember. Hand grenade. Yeah, the hand grenade. Oh, that's right. That's right. Let's get to that sequence there. So right here, we just have the old, almost like the weekly TV episode of uh, bombs going off. The What do you call those in-ground explosives that the stunt drivers go over? Mm -hmm. Timed explosives there. But the plane flying around, dropping bombs. They escape that. I love we got that rebel car here, eh? Yeah, it doesn't last very long. <laughs> well, no, it blows up too. <laughs> well, it's a nice looking car. I think this was like 65 or 66 Mustang or something they used oh, here. Oh, nice. There you go. Watch yeah. it. pulls up here. Turns over and boom. <laughs> yeah, you got it. I love how it rolls three times. It's like everything is just like explodes if it rolls over. <laughs> and they have to love the fact that they got this ending for the race. I mean, it, if they're tracking ratings, it's got to be one of the highest rated endings of a race ever. Yeah, so she tries to kill Frankenstein to drive him off a cliff, and they have a little uh, meeting here, of meeting of the minds of working together now. And we see that Frankenstein actually has some respect for Thomasina Payne. My navigator. You're the only one who knows where you're going. I mean, whose side are you on anyway? I thought the only thing you cared about was winning the race. Sure. Only the winner of the race is to shake hands with Mr. President. Is that a grenade? A hand grenade. A hand grenade. That handshake <laughs> is all I've lived for for as long as I can remember. Now, wait a minute. I don't want you to die. It's my life's work. 
I don't want you to die. It's my life's work. What I love is I don't want you to die, but just moments before I try to drive you off a cliff. (laughs) And also, this indicates that this is probably this Frankenstein's first time in the race. No, no. He's won it before. Frankenstein has, but not David Carradine. Oh, yeah. That's not really explained, is it? Well, not well. He said his he's lived his life leading up to the point where he's able to shake hands with the president. There's a really sinister idea here that there's a whole bunch of different wards of the state that are being raised to be Frankensteins and they're fodder for the machine. So this Frankenstein was raised to be Frankenstein. It's got him pretty pissed off. So when he has the opportunity to finally be Frankenstein, going to take the president out no mortal man can survive all the crashes that he's supposedly been through so when one dies they pray down another one mm-hmm. machine gun joe is killed by the hand grenade that's basically what comes is coming up here let's watch this sequence i love how she grabs but what's weird she grabs the weapon that he was going to use to kill the president she wants the president dead too but i find it interesting frankenstein isn't that upset that his president kill weapons just been used for machine gun joe they needed to get rid of joe though and he never really gets mad at her at all. No. Well, she's pretty. That's why. Yeah. Little Super Mario Kart thing here. Puts the slick on the road, spins out, yeah, comes back. And actually, when I watched that, it kind of stressed me out because they really marked up the road there. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you got to figure that stuff, whatever they put on that road for that scene, probably wasn't washed out. Might still be there. It probably is still there. I love the speed up of the, the film. They did that a lot in this. Yeah. <laughs> Hey, anyone going to go see Fast and Furious 9? <laughs> is that what number they're on? I thought they were on yes. 10. supposed to believe that John Cena is Vin Diesel's brother? Oh, is that what it is? Oh, no. Yeah. Oh, no. <laughs> so she says, give me your hand, and she unscrews. So it is a legitimate screwed-on prosthetic hand that they throw into the car, to Machine Gun Joe's car. They stop. They don't oh. have the uh, state of mind to throw it out of the car. Can you have Myra's saying it's a hand? Yes. <laughs> Myra's great here. It's a pretty interesting little ending here where they get to the end of the race, they win the race, Frankenstein walks out to go shake or to shank the president, as we're led to believe. Frankenstein gets shot by Thomasina Payne. Yeah, because Thomasina at this point thinks Annie has been killed, so she's going to kill Frankenstein. Mm-hmm. The nice little pen knife here. It's like a, like one of those Swiss Army knives, it seems like. It's enough to do the job. Now, why didn't Tom Cena Paint just shoot the president? Why is she shooting Frankenstein? Because Frankenstein <laughs> killed Annie. Ugh, so confusing. That's a great reveal there that it's not Frankenstein. He's still in the car. And then he says, you. <laughs> I don't understand. All he does is ram the stage and yeah. the president falls from about 10 feet up. And that, that kills him? Well, he's well, elderly. He's out. Yeah, it's about 10 feet up. He falls down. Yeah, in theory, he probably really should have survived that fall because he, he landed on the stuff. They, like, he kind of got cushioned with the fall. Yeah, well, yeah. Or is he impaled by the spikes on the car? Maybe. Uh, uh, who knows? And I love this cut we get. Yeah, it's like triumphant cheer. You know, she puts his hand up. People are cheering. <laughs> a weird shot well it's just so they could transition to the wedding right yeah let's play that out <laughs> mr and mrs president frankenstein president frankenstein dear friends of mine can you tell us what your first official acts will be i plan to pension off the secret police 
restore free elections and minority privilege and move the seat of government back to New Los Angeles. The country has been governed from abroad long enough. Mr. President Frankenstein, is it true that you are now accepting rebels into your government? Well, since I have accepted one into my house. President Frankenstein has appointed my great-grandmother, Thomasina Payne, in view of her experience in the field, as the Minister for Domestic Security. And I plan to deal very harshly with rebels. Anybody who is unhappy with happiness can go find someplace else to live. <laughs> what about the race? The race is abolished. Abolished? That's right. We feel that the country no longer needs this gratuitous display of violence to show the world that its virility is still intact. Right. But, Mr. President Frankenstein, isn't it true that as a racer, your popularity depended entirely on violence? I'm afraid I shall have to let my press secretary answer that question. Stop annoying Mr. President with impertinent questions, Junior. It's the race, man. President Frankenstein, you can't call off the race. The American people won't stand for it. Get out of the way, Junior. The race is the symbol of everything we hold dear, our American way of life. Sure, it's violent. Suspiciously standing right in front of the car. Violent, violent, violent. And that's why we love you. Frank, do we have to listen to this? Be violent. No. So, of course, he runs over him. It's a fun little ending. Oh, and then we get this brilliant speech from this uh, this guy at the end. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. The technique of violence was first developed in 2 million B.C. by the Australopithecines, a tribe of four-foot primates who had no brains to speak of, but who nevertheless invented the tomahawk and used it on each other. This practice led to the enlargement of the brain, another useful weapon. Yes, murder was invented even before man began to think. Now, of course, man has become known as the thinking animal. Man has become known as the thinking animal? Wait a minute, I think all animals think. I'm more impressed that this guy had that rehearsed and ready to go when Junior was killed. Like, he'd been holding on to that. Right. That's how hard he needed to use it. Uh, the four, what were they called? Four foot tall what? Pygmies. <laughs> <laughs> the four foot tall pygmies were the first humanoids to kill? I don't think so. Uh, oh my goodness. Well, let's give our final thoughts here before our, our Zoom free trial runs out again. I was not bored watching this. Once I let myself go and just enjoy this Roger Corman production and what it was, I, I did really enjoy it. It's silly, it's funny. It's got all the things that you would expect from a film like this, and I can see why many podcasts have covered it at great lengths. I can't believe it's taken me this long to see it. I just never had seen it growing up. Probably harder to access growing up now. I mean, back then it is now. I mean, there was no streaming services when I was a teenager. I never saw it on the video shelves anywhere that I can remember. It's fun. Stallone's not in it a lot. He's a side character. Every scene that he's in, he hams it up. I can see why it's talked about when we talk about Stallone films. It's early, probably his best pre-Rocky film. This thing has all the makings of that movie that failed at the box office but became a cult classic afterwards. I enjoyed it. Maybe not as much as Craig has, but (laughs) I would watch it again. I would. I thought it was funny where it was supposed to be funny. The action scenes were good. I enjoyed it. In addition to just being a really, really fun movie, I think this is a great showcase of Stallone's ability as an actor. And we've all talked about how... Sly sort of doesn't get the recognition he deserves. 
And I think far back as 1975, we saw what a solid performer he was and what a handle he had on character and giving people what they want. You could even go back to First Blood where he convinced everybody to change the ending of that movie or that whole movie in general to satisfy an audience. And I think that this is an early example of Stallone knowing what audiences want. I think it's a pitch-perfect performance, and I really, really enjoy it. I'm so glad that we were able to talk about this because I think it is an important film in Stallone's evolution. Baby Stallone, if you will. He did look young. This came out 45 years ago. That's That's insane. insane. (laughs) That is so weird. This is not a dumpster fire in the sense of other movies we've reviewed of Stallone's career. Stopper, My Mum Will Shoot, The Lords of Flatbush. The Lords of Flatbush was actually quite painful, if you remember to go through. This isn't a hard movie to watch. No. You can say anything else you want about it. It's not a hard movie to watch because it gets out in 80 minutes. It delivers exactly what it needs to deliver, and it's done. That wraps up another episode of the Stallone Podcast Network podcast, show, whatever you want to call it. We just want to say to those 430 subscribers on our youtube channel thank you for subscribing we hope you watch our shows and we hope you like our new format that we gave today we we wanted to make this kind of more of a visual experience for our listeners or watchers that if they come to our channel they can look at the things that we're looking at i'm kind of hoping people will do that so if you're listening to this on our podcast feed for future episodes come visit us on the youtube channel because the next movie we review we're going to do it just like this we're going to have it playing in the background. So we'll be talking about things specifically as we see them on the screen that you too as a viewer can see. I think it adds a little bit more fun. You can see us talking about those things. I think it could still work for an audio podcast, but it'd be nice if people looked at it, the YouTube as well and they can see what we're laughing at and getting a chuckle out of. No, I, I always enjoy sitting down with you guys. It's, it's a highlight of my month. Absolutely. Totally agree. And I look forward to our next one. I wonder what our next one will be. Oh, it'll be interesting. Sky's the limit. I'm just happy we got this monkey off our back, Craig. It's done. It's done. Uh, Amazing. Thank you uh, to everybody that um, showed solidarity and voted for this finally. When you guys put it up against Fist, I instantly assumed it was going to lose because Fist Mm -hmm. is such a beloved movie. And, you know, Liam had sort of illustrated it. It's not talked about as much, though. I was really kind of angry when I saw it was going up against Fist. And I do appreciate everybody that voted for this and allowed us to finally talk about this movie and we can move on and I won't be as grumpy in the future. Maybe next time we'll do Judge Dredd. (laughs) Yeah, I was going to say, we should probably do Judge Dredd. (laughs) (laughs) All right, guys, take care. Enjoy your weekend. All right, bye-bye. All right, fellas. Take care. Hello, I'm Leonard Maltin, and I'm here with Roger Corman discussing his extraordinary career and right now discussing Death Race 2000. Years ago, I worked for a paperback publisher who had a guy on retainer to come up with grabber titles for the paperback novels they would publish. The authors could never quite do it, but this guy had a knack. Did you have a knack for titles, or were there people who contributed great titles? Because Death Race 2000 is one of the all-time champs, no question. Everybody uh, worked on the titles. Uh, Death Race was my idea. It was from uh, an original story called The Racer, and The Racer had been done as a film. So I came up with the title Death Race, and then I said, this is a science fiction picture laid in the future. How do we take the words Death Race and say that it's a futuristic picture? This was about 1975. And I think it was actually John Davison, who's gone on to be a very prominent producer, uh, who said, let's put 2000 on it. <laughs> Knowing what he's done subsequently, 
I wouldn't have thought Paul Bartel would have been the perfect choice to direct this particular picture. Paul has done a variety of intriguing and, and provocative films, but they're not action or science fiction oriented. And yet he turned out this very successful movie for you. How did he get attached to this movie? I had liked the work of Paul Martel for some time, and he had directed Second Unit for me on several films, and I knew he was good with humor. And the original story was a serious story, and I felt that the subject matter was totally original. You cannot always say that, or I put another way, you can very seldom say <laughs> you have a completely original idea. The idea was it was a race from New York to New Los Angeles, and the drivers were rated on how fast they could drive and how many pedestrians they could kill. <laughs> and I felt that Paul had the kind of black humor that uh, would fit this, and I brought in a second unit director, who was actually Chuck Griffith, an old friend of mine, and Chuck did most of the action scenes. So the combination of Paul working with the actors and Chuck working with the fast cars really came together very well. In your cast, you had David Carradine, a very good choice for your lead, but your second lead uh, pretty quickly upstaged him because it was Sylvester Stallone. Now, he was just on the brink of his great success. Do you remember how he came to you or how he was cast in the film? Sly had done a picture in New York, and I don't remember the title of it, but it was a low-budget sort of street hoodlum. Oh, that was Lords of Flatbush. Lords of Flatbush, mm -hmm. yes. And he was brilliant in it. I had seen it, and Paul Bartell had seen it, and we jointly felt that he would be ideal for machine gun Jack McGurn, the, uh, <laughs> the heavy in the picture, and so we cast him on that basis. Well, your timing was perfect, wasn't it? It was indeed, because he went from that picture to almost immediate stardom. And that couldn't have hurt you either, in the selling the picture even a year or two later to cable TV and, uh, and down the line on home video. Yes. I cannot put uh, his name above David Carradine's because of contractual obligations, but we now put him equal to David, but just <laughs> below. Why not? Right. Now, the people who made Road Warrior, George Miller and those folks down in Australia, have said that this film inspired them and their Mad Max movies. I'd like you to comment on that, but I'd like you to comment about, in general, how you think your innovative, low-budget films may have influenced mainstream movie makers over the years. I had read, I think, in one of the news magazines uh, that Road Warrior and Mad Max uh, came after they saw uh, Death Race. I'm very proud of Death Race, but I have to admit their films uh, had a slight edge on us. But I think one of the things a low or medium budget filmmaker can do is experiment, can take chances such as we did and such a zany idea as Death Race because you're not gambling that much money. If you're making a hundred million dollar picture at a major studio, you must appeal to a mass audience to get your investment back, and you're going to be fairly conservative as to what you do. But if you're making a picture, say, in today's market for a million dollars, or when we did Death Race, which was, I think, about three hundred thousand dollars, we could afford to essentially go crazy, and in that case, and occasionally otherwise, uh, we hit the jackpot. Now, just to put things in context, if you were spending three to four hundred thousand dollars at that time, and this is the mid 1970s, a major studio movie at that same time would have been about four or five million, you figure, or two to three million, something like that. I would think a major studio film would have been about four or five million dollars at that time. The proportion is still 
there, and, and yes. the, the gulf is wide, and you really got a lot on the screen for your money, didn't you? Yes. Uh, the uh, cars were designed by uh, an award-winning automotive designer, and I, I told him the idea that each one would have a theme, and uh, he came up with great cars, and the cars went on tour with the films, and at that time, we could take a picture like Death Race, put, say, a hundred prints into the Chicago market, and we could beat the majors for a week. That's <laughs> one of the things that bothers me today. We can't do that anymore. It's a different business in terms of the distribution of movies, isn't it? Yes. But fortunately, here's, here we are more than 20 years later, and the film has a new life on video. Yes. Well, it deserves that. Thanks very much, Rod. Thank you.